Our readings this morning are quite long uh, for chapters and photos, so uh, we're going to break up things a bit. I'm going to give a bit of my message now, and then we're going to uh, hear the rest of the readings in a moment. The recurring thing that we'll see in all of the plays is the harvest of Pharaoh's heart, as we saw the scene set in verse 13 there. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord has said. Ten times through the plates we will be told that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Three times his heart was hardened, and three times that the Lord hardened his heart. Now this shows us something about the mystery of a relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Did Pharaoh harden his heart or did God harden his heart? The answer is yes. We run into all kinds of problems, of course, when we try to work out which came first, Pharaoh's actions or God's, the chicken or the egg. Well, we'll hear first up that Pharaoh is hardening his heart. We know that the Lord had already declared in advance his intention to harden it. Why? In order that his glory may be seen in these great acts of judgment, and so that the Egyptians may know that he is the Lord. I think behind that statement is more than just that they will know the fact that Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, is the great God. The Lord wants the Egyptians to know him as well. And no doubt, it's not mentioned, but I'm sure as those plagues happened, there may well have been many Egyptians whose hearts turned to him and cried out for mercy. So does God have the right to override what we like to call our free will? Well, of course he does. He is the sovereign creator. He has the right to do whatever he pleases. And no creature can argue against what he does. As Romans 9.20 says, But who are you, O man, to answer that to God? Will wise mother say to us, mother, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable use? Now, in order to make this point in Romans, Paul has made reference to Pharaoh, quoting from our passage for this morning. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. In his conclusion, so then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he pardons whomever he wills. The reason why we struggle, I think, with accepting this prerogative of God to override our so-called free will is because we often don't have a right view of the sovereignty of God or a right view of the seriousness of human sin. Firstly, we don't like God overriding our human wills because we think that 
our wills are sacred, that not even God has the right to override us. We argue that if a God is truly love, then he will respect us and not force us to love him because we think that life must be a free choice to be genuinely loved. However, love isn't presented in the Bible as a free choice or an option. Love is commanded. It's at the heart of the law. It is the two greatest commandments. Human beings will be judged based on our refusal to love God and our neighbour. So love in the Bible isn't the sentimental, mushy version of love presented today. Love is love, or I can choose to love whomever I want. We actually have a solemn duty to love God commands us. Human free will isn't sacred. What is sacred is divine free will, God's free will. God is the only being with true free will, true freedom to act as he promises, as he pleases. And the moment we try to exalt human free will, we'll end up diminishing and downplaying God's free will. In any context between God's will and human will, God's will always wins. Secondly, we don't like the idea of God hardening or having mercy on whomever he wills. In other words, having mercy on some and passing over others. Because we've been led to think that we as human beings are not actually that bad after all. But at least I'm not that bad, certainly not bad enough to deserve God's eternal punishment. We all have friends and family and neighbours who are good, kind, honest people, and so we struggle with this idea that God would choose not to have mercy on them. Maybe we have less of a problem with God hardening Pharaoh's heart because we know he was an evil man and we consider him to be more evil than us, so it's okay. But as soon as we start thinking like that, either I'm good enough to not deserve to be overlooked, or that I'm someone else is too evil to deserve mercy, then I'm operating under law. I'm operating as if I'm saved by goodness, not by grace. See, the bottom line isn't how good or bad I may be, but who the object of my worship is. Jesus didn't say, the Father is seeking those who will be good people. He said, the Father is seeking the true worshippers who will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So every human being, without exception, is by default in a state of enmity against God. As Ephesians 2 puts it, by nature children of God, without hope and without God in the world. So when God hardens someone's heart, he simply is handing them over to this reality in which they already stand. And he ensures that they 
experience the full outworking of their sinfulness. Even with no obligation to have mercy on anyone. And that's what makes grace so amazing. That he chooses to show mercy to the undeserving. That he's chosen to show mercy to me where I deserve to be left in the hardness of my heart and the blackness of my sin. When I was no better than Pharaoh. I'm so thankful that God overrode my free will. Because if he just left me to my will, I'd still be in darkness. So I risk dishonouring God when I, when I actually get caught up in trying to work out why he doesn't have mercy on some, instead of worshipping him with thankfulness. Thankfulness that he has had mercy on a sinner like me. We're now going to hear uh, three different people uh, read through uh, the rest of these chapters uh, and through the, not the first nine plagues. when he saw that the plagues had come to an end. 
You may have noticed also a progression in what Pharaoh says that he will allow the Israelites to do. In plague two, he said, Please, with the Lord, take away the frogs from me and my people, and I'll let the people go to sacrifice the Lord. Just a general thing. Then in plague four, he says, Go and sacrifice to the Lord within the land. In plague eight, he says, you may go, but only the men may go, you must leave the children behind. And in plague nine, he said, go and serve the Lord, you and your little ones also, but leave your flocks and your birds behind. We might think that he's gradually being worn down here, yet each time we're told his heart was hardened. And then finally at the end, when Moses essentially says, we're all going, including all of our animals, Pharaoh then shuts down all negotiation, threatening to kill Moses if he ever sees him again. The Exodus story is about the battle for true worship. That's the reason why the Lord is bringing the Israelites out, so that they may worship him, serve him, the plagues are judgments not just on Pharaoh and on Egypt, but they are judgments on the Egyptian gods, the objects of the Egyptians' worship. Ancient people saw their battles. I'm sure what's happening there. They saw their battles as battles between their gods. Since their gods were considered protectors of the people who worshipped them, uh, as long as the people kept them satisfied by offering them bribes and offerings. Uh, so the victory of one nation over the other was a demonstration that their gods were more powerful than those that they had defeated. That's why when the Philistines were fighting against Israel and they heard that the Israelites had brought the Ark of the Covenant into their camp, they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. However, in this battle, the Israelites were defeated and the Philistines captured the ark and they put it in the temple of their god, Dagon, as a claim that Dagon of the Philistines was more powerful than Yahweh of the Israelites. However, in the morning, they found the statue of Dagon face down, prostrate before the ark. And the next morning, again, he was face down, but his head and hands were cut off. And then the people of the region suffered a plague of rats and tumors. And they concluded, actually, maybe Yahweh is more powerful than Dagon, and his ark must be returned. So the priest said, Why have you why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh harden their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? 
So in these plagues that come upon Egypt, the Lord is showing himself to be more powerful than all the gods of Egypt. Not just more powerful by degrees, but to have absolute power over them as the only true God. Now the Egyptians had over 2,000 gods in their pantheon, and these gods oversaw every aspect of life. They had gods of writing, of eating and drinking, gods of drunkenness, of childbirth, of love and war, and they had gods of different realms, the sky, the sun, the river Nile, the underworld, life and death. So each of the plagues was designed not merely to bring this suffering to Egypt, but it shows the Lord's supremacy and his defeat of these so-called gods. Some examples, one of the most powerful gods of Egypt was Osiris. He was closely associated with the Nile River. One of the stories about Osiris, that was an ancient story even at this time, maybe it had been around already for a thousand years amongst Egyptians, was that Osiris was killed by his brother, Seth. He was cut into pieces and the pieces were thrown into the Nile, turning the water red with his blood before being brought back to life. In the first plague, what does the Lord do? He turns all the water in Egypt to blood, symbolising that Osiris actually is still dead. The first plague also, we were told, kills all the fish in the Nile. The, the Nile perch were considered sacred symbols of another goddess, Neith. She was considered to be the mother of all the gods. So this first plague knocks off two of the greatest of the Egyptian gods. The second plague, the plague of frogs. Now one of the goddesses of fertility and childbirth, they had many goddesses of fertility. One of them was called Keket, and she was depicted in their images as a frog or as a woman with a frog's head. Now the presence of frogs for the Egyptians would normally have been a good omen, a sign of fertility. But this is a plague of frogs and there's this ironic twist. The same word that's used, the Nile shall swarm with frogs, is used to describe the Israelites back in Exodus chapter 1 when it said the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, literally they became a swarm. See, the Lord, not Heket, controls fertility and childbirth, which is why the previous Pharaoh's attempts to wipe out the Hebrews by having their children killed at the moment of birth didn't work. But there's also a double blow. Remember, Pharaoh asked that the frogs be taken away. However, initially they're not taken away. They just die where they are in people's homes. And the Egyptians pile them up 
and the land stinks with the smell of rotting crops. All around them, they would have seen the symbol of this goddess rotting in a pile and she stunk. Now, if there was time, and there isn't, we could go through each of all the plagues and show similarly how they are an annihilation of these gods and goddesses in which the Egyptian people have put their trust. But I'll skip through the ninth plague. The most powerful of the gods in Egypt was Ra, the sun god. He was believed to be the ruler and creator of all the gods on the earth. In Egyptian beliefs, Ra rides across the sky on his chariot each day, carrying the disc of the sun, which was a lesser god, Atene. So this plague of darkness was a decisive blow against Ra. It was toppling him from his supposed place as the most powerful of the gods. Now, Ra was also considered the leader of a supreme tribunal of the nine most powerful gods. As I said, the Egyptians saw nine as significant. They put their gods into groupings of nine, three lots of three. So being the ninth plague, this was a statement against that whole system. So along with Ra also fell the gods of the moon and the gods of the stars because the darkness was complete for three whole days. Notably, the goddess Sekhmet, who was associated with the Milky Way, it was considered to be a reflection of the Nile in the heavens. Remember, the first plague had destroyed the Nile on earth. This plague destroyed the Nile in the heavens. Now, Sekhmet was also the goddess of destruction. She was considered responsible for all plagues and all natural disasters. But the Lord, not Sekhmet, had sent these plagues. Why? Because Sekhmet, along with all the gods of Egypt, is dead. So while on earth there was this contrast, this, uh, this contest between Moses and Pharaoh, the real contest is taking place in the heavenlies. The Lord is showing himself to be the one true God before whom there are no other gods worthy of worship. Ephesians 6, 12 tells us we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authority, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. At the moment in the US, Christians are arguing over who they should vote for in the upcoming presidential election, both pick. But more important than the question, will Donald Trump win the next US election? Will Scott Morrison win the next Australian federal election? The more important question is, will we bow down to the idols of our age, or will we bow our knee and worship Jesus as Lord for the glory of God the Father? Who is the true God and ruler of the universe? 
Because the world sees politics as the all-important factor that determines our future, we can easily get caught up in politics and forget who actually rules overall. So really, we should be making sure that we are worshipping the one true God. And then we're free to vote for whoever we want because we know that ultimately it's the Lord who rules and who wins the day. The risen Jesus reigns over all the spiritual powers of so-called gods. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This is set aside known to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's a description of the Exodus, isn't it? The rulers and authorities were just put to open shame in the triumph of the Lord. Plagues of Egypt are a picture of this triumphant Jesus who's defeated the spiritual rulers and authorities in his cross. During Jesus' final three hours on the cross, there was darkness all across the land, corresponding to this three days of darkness over Egypt in the night plague. So just as this ninth plague is the final nail in the coffin of the gods of Egypt, so too the cross was the disarming of all spiritual powers that stand against God and his people. The cross is the true exodus because by his blood Jesus has opened the way for us to come out of our bondage and out of our false worship of our idols and into the true freedom of worshipping the Father and the Spirit. How did Jesus defeat the devil? He robbed him of his primary weapon, accusation. By burying us in, by turning aside the wrath of God from us to himself, by justifying us, by cleansing us, by making us holy, by interceding forever before us, before the throne for us, by giving us a new heart to worship the Father, he's completely disarmed the devil and sealed his fate. So when a person becomes a Christian, they don't simply change their beliefs. Because contained in the Gospel Declaration, Jesus is Lord, is the announcement that all the false gods are defeated and powerless and have come to nothing through the victorious death and resurrection of Jesus. And so Christians are described in the New Testament as those who turn from God to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven who be raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the rock of heaven. Now we may not worship the sun or the frog goddess of fertility, but we still have idols of our age that we cling to 
I need to name them because we know what they are. Anything that we set up in the place of God. So whatever idols you may be into, know that Jesus has defeated them. He's shown them to be an empty sham. And he calls you to turn from them and to come out into the freedom of the Spirit to worship the Father through you. Let's pray.